of part one of the Alpha Human, a podcast series all about Socrates. As I said, it's episode eight, so if you haven't caught up with episodes one through seven, feel free to do so. And without any further ado, I want to welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. Hi there. Welcome to the fray. This is episode eight. about to begin one of the most famous trials in human history. The trial of Socrates is probably the most famous part of the philosopher's life. Smart guy pisses off wrong people. Smart guy prosecuted in sham trial. Smart guy tells prosecutors to go pound sand. That about sums it up. Doesn't seem like that big a deal when it's reduced to a couple of sentences. But as we've discovered over the past episodes, there was always more to the story. It feels inevitable that we should have ended up here, in a public trial of a man fighting for his life due to how and what he believed in. Inertia had set in a century previous with the adoption of democracy. Basic freedom, the culmination of eons of change and turmoil, had provided the playing field that the social experiment called ancient Athens was to be played on. The game produced an extraordinary person, so much so that the extraordinary people of the time thought this person to be the end-all and be-all. Our Socrates. That the man Socrates found himself standing alone in front of hundreds, if not a couple thousand of his fellow Athenians, fighting for his life was not surprising. In fact, as I have said many times in this series, that Socrates was able to live until the age of 70 is amazing. It is a testament to the type of person the flesh-and-blood Socrates must have been. Relentless, strong, clever, stubborn, polite, poor, just, virtuous, and to the very end, happy. We don't know a ton about the trial itself. It is assumed to have occurred on a misty spring morning in early May in 399 BC. It was held in a corner of the Acropolis, outside, on level ground with no acoustical advantage. This would matter as there would be 500 men on the jury, standing close in, forming a semicircle around the speakers. There were no accoutrements of our modern courtrooms, no dais, no gavels, no attorneys or bailiffs. There was a judge, the aforementioned jurors, the prosecutors, and our defendant. And there were spectators, lots of them. The weather was fair, the defendant was famous, so what better way to spend the morning? Most Athenians would agree with us wholeheartedly. Socrates was not a public speaker, and for certain the trial could have been held in one of the many amphitheaters of Athens. But you don't throw a sham trial and leave a detail like that to chance. One of the accusers, a man named Lycon, was an actual orator by trade, as he would have no problem projecting to such a large audience. The other two accusers were also men who had been slighted by Socrates and his questions. Miletus was a religious fundamentalist adhering to the Olympians and their rule of the heavens. He was responsible for the charge of impiety against Socrates. Miletus was a sort of a McCarthyite 
who use piety or their perceived lack of it as an excuse to seize political power. Anitus was a merchant and general who feared Socrates would continue to undermine democratic Athens. Hadn't his student ushered in the thirty tyrants? Left unchecked, Anitus believed Socrates was a real threat, and the aforementioned Lycon, the orator, was a sophist, so his enmity toward Socrates is well known. The prosecution's case has not survived history to be available to us today. We have no written record of what was said by the prosecution. We do know that each of the three spoke. We know some of the arguments that were put forth, but only because we have Socrates' response. In fact, all we know about the trial of Socrates is due to one man, the philosopher Plato. I'll have a lot to say about Plato in forthcoming episodes. For now, it is enough to know he was in his late 20s at the time, he was a couple of generations younger than Socrates, that he was actually in the audience that day, and that he is supposed to have transcribed Socrates' defense verbatim. That transcription is known as the Apology, and is published as one of Plato's dialogues, but it is in fact more like a soliloquy, with just a touch of question and answer to ensure that you know you're listening to Socrates. Now, Socrates' life and beliefs were put on trial, and the man himself was able to speak for himself in the only manner he knew how, straightforward, honest, and to the point. In many ways, the apology is not a great speech. It certainly is not a Periclean funeral speech. But it is far more important set of words and phrases, in my opinion. That is not just due to the fact that it contains a concise breakdown of what Socrates' beliefs were. There is no way to walk away from hearing it and profess to not understand where Socrates stands. But for an entirely different reason altogether do I place such a lofty label as most important speech ever. That's right. I put the speech at the top of the heap for one simple reason. If my choice for the most important human ever gives a concise defense on what makes him the most important human ever, then the speech itself, explaining the process of the alpha human, must be the alpha speech. But why use one reason when you have more? Besides being the blueprint for the alpha human, it is also the Rosetta Stone for everything concerning Socrates' philosophy. Everything we are going to be covering in part two of this series will involve, in some part, this speech. Why? Because Socrates' defense speech, known as Plato's Apology, is the only writing of Socratic thought that we know comes directly from the mouth and mind of the man himself. Everything else that is ever referenced is a recollection at best. This speech is the only time we ever get a glimpse of what it was like to hear the man himself talk and reason. Without these 8,716 words, we would be lost as to what Socrates' philosophy is all about. Anyone could have made up anything they want, and thanks to this handful of pages, we can at least attempt to compare ideas and see if Socrates the man indeed held those beliefs, or in fact he didn't, and someone is using our alpha human as a mouthpiece for their own agenda. But more on that later. For me, this speech is the highest of drama. At its core, it is a man fighting for his very life, using only his wits against a hostile mass of humanity. During the speech, Socrates has to stop multiple times as he's being heckled and interrupted. This is a 70-year-old war hero that they're lobbing their insults at, a man who must have struggled to project his aged voice, barefoot, wearing his customary two rags, fastened with two pins made of bone. 
He faces this trial alone, but he shows no fear. It is time to let the man speak. If you don't like listening to 40 minutes of Socrates, please avail yourself of a written version of it. It's online, so it shouldn't be hard to find for free. I'll catch up with you all in the next episode when we finally will be saying goodbye to our beastly alpha human. But for now, without any further ado, I give you the philosophic son of a stonecutter himself, Socrates. How you have felt, O men of Athens, at hearing the speeches of my accusers, I cannot tell. But I know that their persuasive words almost made me forget who I was. Such was the effect of them. And yet they have hardly spoken a word of truth. But many as their falsehoods were, there was one of them which quite amazed me. I mean, when they told you to be upon your guard and not to let yourself be deceived by the force of my eloquence. They ought to be ashamed of saying this because they were sure to be detected as soon as I opened my lips and displayed my deficiency. They certainly did appear to be most shameless in saying this, unless by the force of eloquence they mean the force of truth. For then I do indeed admit that I am eloquent. But in how different a way from theirs? Well, as I was saying, they have hardly uttered a word, or not more than a word, of truth. But you shall hear from me the whole truth, not, however, delivered after their manner, in a set oration duly ornamented with words and phrases. No, indeed. But I shall use the words and arguments which occur to me at the moment, for I am certain that this is right, and that at the time of my life I ought not to be appearing before you, O men of Athens, in the character of a juvenile orator. Let no one expect this of me, and I must beg you to grant me one favor, which is this. If you hear me using the same words in my defense which I have been in the habit of using, in which most of you may have heard in the Agora and at the tables of the money changers or anywhere else, I would ask you not to be surprised at this and not to interrupt me, for I am more than seventy years of age, and this is the first time that I have ever appeared in a court of law, and I am quite a stranger to the ways of the place, and therefore I would have you regard me as if I were really a stranger, with whom you would excuse if he spoke in his native tongue and after the fashion of his country, and I think that is not an unfair request. Never mind the manner which may or may not be good, but think only of the justice of my cause, and give heed to that. Let the judge decide justly, and the speaker speak truly. And first, I have to reply to the older charges and to my first accusers, and then I will go on to the later ones. For I have had many accusers who accused me of old, and their false charges have continued during my many years. And I am more afraid of them than of Anitus and his associates, who are dangerous too in their own way. But far more dangerous are these, who began when you were children, and took possession of your minds with their falsehoods, telling of one Socrates, a wise man, who speculated about the heaven above, and searched into the earth beneath, and made the worse appear the better cause. These are the accusers whom I dread, for they are the circulators of this rumor, and their hearers are too apt to fancy that speculators of this sort do not believe in the gods. And there are many, and their charges against me are of an ancient date, and they made them in the days when you were impressible, in childhood, or perhaps in youth. And the cause, when heard, went by default, for there was none to answer. And, hardest of all, their names I do not know and cannot tell, unless in chance of a comic poet. But the main body of these slanderers for whom envy and malice have wrought upon you, and there are some of them who are convinced themselves and impart their convictions to others, all these, I say, are most difficult to deal with, 
for I cannot have them up here and examine them, and therefore I must simply fight with shadows in my own defense, and examine when there is no one who answers. I will ask you then to assume with me, as I was saying, that my opponents are of two kinds, one recent and the other ancient, and I hope that you will see the propriety of my answering the latter first. For these accusations you heard long before the others, and much oftener. Well, then, I will make my defense, and I will endeavor in the short time which is allowed to do away with this evil opinion of me, which you have held for such a long time. And I hope I may succeed, if this will be well for you and me, that my words may find favor with you. But I know that to accomplish this is not easy. I quite see the nature of the task. Let the event be as God wills. In obedience to the law, I make my defense. I will begin in the beginning, and ask what the accusation is which has given rise to this slander of me, and which has encouraged Miletus to proceed against me. What do the slanderers say? They shall be my prosecutors, and I will sum up their words in an affidavit. Socrates is an evildoer and a curious person who searches into things under the earth and in heaven, and he makes the worse appear the better cause, and he teaches the aforementioned doctrines to others. That is the nature of the accusation, and that is what you have seen yourselves in the comedy of Aristophanes, who has introduced a man who he calls Socrates, going about and saying that he can walk in the air, and talking a deal of nonsense concerning matters which I do not pretend to know either much or little. Not that I mean to say anything disparaging of anyone who is a student of natural philosophy. I should be very sorry if Miletus could lay that charge. But the simple truth is, O Athenians, that I have nothing to do with these studies. Very many of those here present are witnesses to the truth of this, and to them I appeal. Speak, then, who have heard me, and tell your neighbors whether any of you have ever known me to hold forth in few words or in many upon matters of this sort. You hear their answer, and from, from what they say of this you will be able to judge the truth of the rest. As little foundation is there for the report that I am a teacher and take money, that is no more true than the other. Although, if a man is able to teach, I honor him for being paid. There is Gorgias of Leonidum, and Prodicus of Sios, and Hippias of Elvis, who go to the round of the cities and are able to persuade the young men to leave their own citizens by whom they may be taught for nothing, and come to them, whom they not only pay, but are thankful if they may be allowed to pay them. There is actually a Parian philosopher residing in Athens, of whom I have heard, and I came to hear of him in this way. I met a man who was spent a world of money on the sophist, Callias, the son of Hipponicus, and knowing that he had sons, I asked him, Callias, I said, if your two sons were foals or calves, there would be no deficiency in finding someone to put over them. We should hire a trainer of horses or a farmer, probably, who would improve and perfect them in their own proper virtue and excellence. But as they are human beings, whom are you thinking of placing over them? Is there anyone who understands human and political virtue? You must have thought about this, as you have sons. Is there anyone? There is, he said. Who is he? said I. And of what country? And what does he charge? Evenus the Parian, he replied. He is the man, and his charge is five meni. Happy is Evenus, I said to myself. If he really has this wisdom and teaches at such a modest charge, had I the same, I should have been very proud and conceited. But the truth is that I have no knowledge of the kind, O Athenians. I dare say that someone will ask the question, Why is this, Socrates, and what is the origin of these accusations of you? It must have been something strange which you have been doing. All this great fame and talk about you would never have arisen if you had only been like other men. 
Tell us, then, why is this, as we should be sorry to judge hastily of you? Now I regard this as a fair challenge, and I will endeavor to explain to you the origin of this name of wise, and of this evil fame. Please attend to this, and although some of you may think I am joking, I declare that I will tell you the entire truth. Men of Athens, this reputation of mine has come of a certain sort of wisdom which I possess. If you ask me what kind of wisdom, I reply such wisdom is attainable by man, for to that extent I am inclined to believe that I am wise, whereas the persons of whom I am speaking have superhuman wisdom, which I fail to describe because I have it not myself. And he who says that I have speaks falsely and is taking away my character. And here, O men of Athens, I must beg you not to interrupt me, even if I attempt to say something extravagant. For the word which I will speak is not mine. I will refer you to a witness who is worthy of credit and will tell you about my wisdom, whether I have any and of what sort, and that witness shall be the god of Delphi. You must have known Chariphon. He was early a friend of mine and also a friend of yours. Well, Chariphon, as you know, was very impetuous in all his doings, and he went to Delphi and boldly asked the oracle to tell him whether, as I was saying, I must beg you not to interrupt. He asked the oracle to tell them whether there was anyone wiser than I was, and the Pythian prophetess answered him that there was no man wiser. Chariphon is dead himself, but his brother, who is here in court, will confirm the truth of this story. Why do I mention this? Because I am going to explain to you why I have such an evil name. When I heard the answer, I said to myself, What can the god mean? And what is the interpretation of this riddle? For I know that I have no wisdom, small or great. What can he mean when he says that I am the wisest of men? And yet he is a god and cannot lie, that would be against his nature. After a long consideration, I at last thought of a method of trying the question. I reflected that if I could only find a man wiser than myself, then I might go to the god with reputation in my hand. I should say to him, Here is a man who is wiser than I am, but you said that I was the wisest. Accordingly, I went to one who had the reputation of wisdom, and observed to him, his name I need not mention, he was a politician whom I selected for examination, and the result was as follows. When I began to talk with him, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise, although he was thought wise by many, and wiser still by himself. And I went and tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise, but was not really wise, and the consequence was that he hated me, and his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. So I left him, saying to myself as I went away, Well, although I do not suppose that either of us knows anything really beautiful and good, I am better off than he is, for he knows nothing and thinks he knows. I neither know nor think I know. In this latter particular, then I seemed to have slightly the advantage of him. Then I went to another, who had still higher philosophical pretensions, and my conclusions were exactly the same. I made another enemy of him and of many others beside him. After this I went to one man after another, being not unconscious of the enmity that I provoked, and I lamented and feared this, but necessity was laid upon me. The word of God, I thought, ought to be considered first. And I said to myself, I must go to all who appear to know and find out the meaning of the oracle. And I swear to you, Athenians, by the dog I swear, for I must tell you the truth, the result of my mission was just this. I found that the men most in repute were all but the most foolish and that some inferior men were really wiser and better. I will tell you the tale of my wanderings and of the Herculean labors, as I may call them, 
which I endured only to find at last the oracle irrefutable. When I left the politicians, I went to the poets, tragic, dithyrambic, and all sorts. And there I said to myself, you will be detected. Now you will find out that you are more ignorant than they are. Accordingly, I took them some of the most elaborate passages in their own writings and asked what was the meaning of them, thinking that they would teach me something. Will you believe me? I am almost ashamed to speak of this, but still I must say that there is hardly a person present who would not have talked better about their poetry than they did themselves. That showed me in an instant that not by wisdom do poets write poetry, but by sort of genius and inspiration. And they are like diviners or soothsayers who also say many fine things but do not understand the meaning of them. And the poets appeared to me to be much in the same case, and I further observed that upon the strength of their poetry, they believed themselves to be the wisest of men in other things in which they were not wise. So I departed, conceiving myself to be superior to them for the same reason that I was superior to the politicians. At last I went to the artisans, for I was conscious that I knew nothing at all, as I may say, and I was sure that they knew many fine things, and in this I was not mistaken, for they did know many things of which I was ignorant, and in this they certainly were wiser than I was. But I observed that even the good artisans fell into the same error as the poets. Because they were good workmen, they thought they also knew all sorts of high matters, and this defect in them overshadowed their wisdom. Therefore, I asked myself on behalf of the oracle whether I would like to be as I was, neither having their knowledge nor their ignorance, or like them in both. And I made the answer to myself and the oracle that I was better off as I was. This investigation has led to my hearing many enemies of the worst and most dangerous kind, and has given occasion also to many calumnies. And I am called wise, for my hearers always imagine that I myself possess the wisdom which I find wanting in others. But the truth is, O men of Athens, that God only is wise. And in this oracle he means to say that the wisdom of men is little or nothing. He is not speaking of Socrates, he is only using my name as an illustration as if he said, He, O men, is the wisest who, like Socrates, knows that his wisdom is in truth worth nothing. And so I go my way, obedient to God, and make inquisition into wisdom of anyone, whether citizen or stranger, who appears to be wise. And if he is not wise, then in vindication of the oracle, I show him that he is not wise. And in this occupation quite absorbs me, and I have no time to give either to any public matter of interest or to any concern of my own but I am in utter poverty by reason of my devotion to God. There is another thing. Young men of the richer classes, who have not much better to do, come about me of their own accord. They like to hear the pretenders examine, and they often imitate me and examine others themselves. There are plenty of persons, as they soon enough discover, who think that they know something but really know little or nothing. And then those who are examined by them, instead of being angry with themselves, are angry with me. This confounded Socrates, they say, this villainous misleader of youth, and then if somebody asks them, why, what evil does he practice or teach? They do not know and cannot tell, but in order that they may not appear to be at a loss, they repeat the ready-made charges which are used against all philosophers about teaching things up in the clouds and under the earth and having no gods and making the worse appear the better cause. For they do not like to confess that their pretense of knowledge has been detected, which is the truth, and as they are numerous and ambitious and energetic, and are all in the battle array and have persuasive tongues, they have filled your ears with the loud and inveterate calumnies. And this is the reason why my three accusers, Miletus, Anitus, and Lycon, have set upon me. Miletus, 
who has quarreled with me on behalf of the poets, Anitus on behalf of the craftsmen, Lycon on behalf of the rhetoricians. And as I said at the beginning, I cannot expect to get rid of this mass of, calum- mass of calumny all in a moment. And this, O men of Athens, is the truth and the whole truth. I have concealed nothing, I have dissembled nothing, and I know that this plainness of speech makes them hate me. And what is their hatred but a proof that I am speaking the truth? This is the occasion and reason of their slander of me, as you will find out either in this or in any future inquiry. I have said enough in my defense against the first class of my accusers. I turn to the second class, who are headed by Miletus, that good and patriotic man as he calls himself, and now I will try to defend myself against them. These new accusers must also have their affidavit read. What do they say? Something of this sort that Socrates is a doer of evil and a corrupter of the youth, and he does not believe in the gods of the state, and he has other new divinities of his own. That is the sort of charge. Now let us examine the particular counts. He says that I am a doer of evil who corrupt the youth, but I say, O men of Athens, that Miletus is the doer of evil, and the evil is that he makes a joke of a serious matter, and is too ready at bringing other men to trial from a pretended zeal and an interest about matters in which he really never had the smallest interest. And the truth of this I will endeavor to prove. Come hither, Miletus, and let me ask you a question. You think a great deal about the improvement of youth. Yes, Socrates, I do. Tell the judges, then, who is their improver? For you must know, as you have taken the pains to discover their corrupter, and are citing and accusing me before them. Speak, then, and tell the judges who their improver is. Observe, Miletus, that you are silent and have nothing to say. But is it not this rather disgraceful and a very considerable proof of what I was saying, that you have no interest in the matter? Speak up, friend, and tell us who their improver is. The laws, Socrates. But that, my good sir, is not my meaning. I want to know who the person is, who, in the first place, knows the laws. The judges, Socrates, who are present in court. What do you mean to say, Miletus, that they are able to instruct and improve youth? Certainly they are, Socrates. What, all of them, or some only and not others? All of them, Socrates. By the goddess, here is that good news. There are plenty of improvers then. And what do you say of the audience? Do they improve them? Yes, Socrates, they do. And the senators? Yes, the senators improve them. Then every Athenian improves and elevates them, all with the exception of myself and I alone am their corrupter. Is that what you affirm? Yes, Socrates, that is why I stoutly affirm. I am very unfortunate if that is true. But suppose I ask you a question. Would you say that this also holds true in the case of horses? Does one man do them harm and all the world good? Is not the exact opposite of this true? One man is able to do them good, or at least not many. The trainer of horses, that is to say, does them good and others who have to do with them rather injure them. Is that not true, Miletus, of horses or of any other animals? Certainly you would agree. Whether you and Anitus say yes or no, there is no matter. Happy indeed would be the condition of youth if they had one corrupter only, and all the rest of the world were their improvers. And you, Miletus, have sufficiently shown that you never had a thought about the young. Your carelessness is seen in your not caring about matters spoken in this very indictment. And now, Miletus, I must ask you another question. Which is better, to live among bad citizens or among good ones? Answer, friend, 
I say, for that is a question which may be easily answered. Do not the good do their neighbors good, and the bad do them evil? Certainly, Socrates. And is there anyone who would rather be injured than benefited by those who they live with? And is there anyone who would rather be injured than benefited by those who live with him? Answer, my friend. The law requires you to answer. Does anyone like to be injured? Certainly not, Socrates. And when you accuse me of corrupting and deteriorating the youth, do you allege that I corrupt them intentionally or unintentionally? Intentionally, I say, Socrates. But you have just admitted that the good do their neighbors good and the evil do them evil. Now, is that a truth which your superior wisdom has recognized thus early in life? And am I, at my age, in such darkness and ignorance as not to know that if a man with whom I have lived with is corrupted by me, I am very likely to be harmed by him? Yet I corrupt him intentionally too? That is what you are saying, and of that you will never persuade me or any other human being. But either I do not corrupt them or I corrupt them unintentionally, so that on either view of the case, you lie. If my offense is unintentional, the law has no cognizance of unintentional offenses. You ought to have taken me privately and warned me and admonished me, for if I had been better advised, I should have left off doing what I only did unintentionally, whereas you hated to converse with me or teach me. But you indicted me in this court, which is a place not of instruction, but of punishment. I have shown, Athenians, as I was saying, that Miletus has no care at all, great or small, about the matter. But still I should like to know, Miletus, in what I am affirmed to corrupt the young. I suppose you mean, as I infer from your indictment, that I teach them not to acknowledge the gods, which the state acknowledges, but some other new divinities or spiritual agencies in their stead. These are the lessons which corrupt the youth, as you say. Yes, Socrates, I say that emphatically. Then by the gods, Miletus, of whom are we speaking? Then by gods, Miletus, of whom we are speaking, tell me in the court in somewhat plainer terms what you mean, for I do not as yet understand whether you affirm that I teach others to acknowledge some gods and therefore do believe in gods and am not an entire atheist. This you do not lay to my charge, but only that they are not the same gods which our city recognizes. The charges is that they are different gods. Or do you mean to say that I am an atheist simply and a teacher of atheism? I mean the latter, Socrates. You are a complete atheist. This is an extraordinary statement, Miletus. Why do you say that? Do you mean that I do not believe in the godhead of the sun or moon, which is the common creed of all men? I assure you, judges, that Socrates does not believe in them, for he says that the sun is stone and the moon earth. Friend Miletus, you think you are accusing Anaxagoras. You find that a bad opinion of the judges if you fancy them ignorant to such a degree to not know that these doctrines are found in the books of Anaxagoras, the Clasomenian, who is full of them. And these are the doctrines which the youth are said to learn of Socrates when they are not unfrequently exhibitions of them at the theater, price of admission one drachma at the most. And they might cheaply purchase them and laugh at Socrates if he pretends to father such eccentricities. And so, Miletus, you really think that I do not believe in any god? I swear by Zeus that you, Socrates, believe absolutely in none at all. You are a liar, Miletus, not believed even by yourself. For I cannot help thinking, O men of Athens, that Miletus is reckless and impudent, and that he has written this indictment in a spirit of mere wantonness and youthful bravado. Has he not compounded a riddle thinking to try me? Has he said to himself, I shall see whether this Socrates will discover my ingenious contradiction, or whether I shall be able to deceive him and the rest of them? For he certainly does appear to me to contradict himself in the indictment as much as if he said that Socrates is guilty of not believing in the gods, 
and yet of believing in them. But this surely is a piece of fun. I should like you, O men of Athens, to join me in examining what I conceive to be this inconsistency, and do you, Miletus, answer. And I must remind you that you are not to interrupt me if I speak in my accustomed manner. Did ever a man, Miletus, believe in the existence of human beings and of not human beings? I wish, men of Athens, that he would answer and not be always trying to get up an interruption. Did ever any man believe in horsemanship and not in horses, or in flute-playing and not in flute-players? No, my friend, I'll give the answer to you and to the court, as you refuse to answer for yourself. There is no man who ever did. But now please answer the next question. Can a man believe in spiritual and divine agencies and not in spirits or demigods? He cannot, Socrates. I am glad that I have extracted that answer by the assistance of the court. Nevertheless, you swear by the indictment that I teach and believe in divine or spiritual agencies. I believe in spiritual agencies, as you say, and swear in the affidavit, but if I believe in divine beings, I must believe in spirits or demigods. Is that not true? Yes, that is true, for I may assume that your silence gives assent to that. Now, what are the spirits or demigods? Are they not either gods or the sons of gods? Is that true? Yes, that is true, Socrates. But this is the ingenious riddle of which I was speaking. The demigods or spirits are gods, and you say first that if I don't believe in gods, and then again that I do believe in gods, that is, if I believe in demigods. For if the demigods are the illegitimate sons of gods, whether by the nymphs or by any other mothers, as is thought, that, as all men will allow, necessarily implies the existence of their parents. You might as well affirm the existence of mules and deny that of horses and asses. Such nonsense, Miletus, could only have been intended by you as a trial of me. You have put this into the indictment because you had nothing real of which to accuse me, but no one who has a particle of understanding will ever be convinced by you that the same man can believe in divine and superhuman things and yet not believe that there are gods and demigods and heroes. I have said enough in answer to the charge of Miletus. Any elaborate defense is unnecessary. But as I was saying before, I certainly have many enemies, and this is what will be my destruction if I am destroyed. Of that I am certain. Not Miletus, nor yet Anitus, but the envy and detraction of the world, which has been the death of many good men, and will probably be the death of many more. There is no danger of my being the last of them. Someone will say, and are you not ashamed, Socrates, of a course of life which is likely to bring you to an untimely end? To him I may fairly answer, There you are mistaken. A man who is good for anything ought not to calculate the chance of living or dying. He ought only to consider whether in doing anything he is doing right or wrong, acting the part of a good man or of a bad. Whereas, according to your view, the heroes who fell at Troy were not good for much, and the son of Thetis, above all, who altogether despised danger in comparison with disgrace, and when his goddess mother said to him, in his eagerness to slay Hector, that if he avenged his companion Patroclus and slew Hector, he would die himself. Fate, as she said, waits upon you next after Hector. He, hearing this, utterly despised danger and death, and instead of fearing them, feared rather to live in dishonor and not to avenge his friend. Let me die next, he replies, and be avenged of my enemy rather than abide here by the beaked ships, a scorn and burden of the earth. Had Achilles any thought of death and danger? For whatever a man's place is, whether the place which he has chosen or that in which he has been placed by a commander, 
There he ought to remain in the hour of danger. He should not think of death or of anything but of disgrace. And this, O men of Athens, is a true saying. Strange indeed would be my conduct, O men of Athens, if I, who, when I was ordered by the generals, whom you chose to command me at Potidaea, and Amphipolis, and Delium, remained where they placed me, like any other man facing death, if I say now, when, as I conceive and imagine, God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men, I were to desert my post through fear of death, or any other fear, that would indeed be strange, and I might justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods if I disobeyed the oracle because I was afraid of death. Then I should be fancying that I was wise when I was not wise. For this fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom, and not real wisdom, being the appearance of knowing the unknown, since no one knows whether death, which they in their fear apprehend to be the greatest evil, may not be the greatest good. Is there not here conceit of knowledge, which is a disgraceful sort of ignorance? And this is the point in which, as I think, I am superior to men in general, in which I might perhaps fancy myself wiser than other men. That whereas I know but little of the world below, I do not suppose that I know, but I do know that injustice and disobedience to a better, whether a god or a man, is evil and dishonorable, and I will never fear or avoid a possible good rather than a certain evil. And therefore, if you let me go now and reject the counsels of Anitus, who said that if I were not put to death, I ought not to have been prosecuted, and that if I escape now, your sons will all be utterly ruined by listening to my words. If you say to me, Socrates, this time we will not mind Anitus, and he will let you off, but upon one condition, that you are not to inquire and speculate in this way any more, and if you are caught doing this again, you shall die. If this was the condition of which you let me go, I shall reply, men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice of exhorting anyone whom I meet after my manner and convincing him, saying, Why do you who are a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens care so much about laying up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation, and so little about the wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all? And you are not ashamed of this? And if the person with whom I am arguing says, Yes, but I do care, I do not depart or let him go at once, I interrogate and examine and cross-examine him, and if I think he has no virtue, I reproach him with undervaluing the greater and overvaluing the less. And this I should say to everyone whom I meet, young and old, citizen and alien, but especially to the citizens inasmuch as they are my brothers. For this is the command of God, as I would have you know, and I believe to this day no greater good has ever happened to the state than my service to God. For I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons and your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. I tell you that virtue is not given by money, but that from virtue come money and every other good of men, public as well as private. This is my teaching, and if this is the doctrine which corrupts the youth, my influence is ruinous indeed. But if anyone says that this is not my teaching, he is speaking in untruth. Wherefore, O men of Athens, I say to you, do as Anitus bids, or not as Anitus bids, and either acquit me or not. But whatever you do, do know that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. Men of Athens, do not interrupt, but hear me. There was an agreement between us that you should hear me out, and I think what I am going to say will do you good. For I have something more to say at which you may be inclined to cry out, but I beg that you will not do this. 
I would have you know that if you kill such a one as I am, you will injure yourselves more than you will injure me. Miletus and Anitus will not injure me. They cannot. For it is not in the nature of things that a bad man should injure a better than himself. I do not deny that he may, perhaps, kill him, or drive him into exile, or deprive him of civil rights. And he may imagine, and others may imagine, that he is doing him a great injury. But in that I do not agree with him. For the evil of doing as Anitus is doing, of unjustly taking another man's life, is greater far. And now, Athenians, I am not going to argue for my own sake, as you may think, but for yours, that you may not sin against God or lightly reject his boon by condemning me. For if you kill me, you will not easily find another like me, who, if I may use such a ludicrous figure of speech, am sort of a gadfly, given to the state by God, and the state is like a great and noble steed, who is tardy in his motion owing to his very size, and requires to be stirred to life. I am the gadfly which God has given the state, and all day long and in all places am always fastening upon you, arousing and persuading and reproaching you. And as you will not easily find another like me, I would advise you to spare me. I dare say that you may feel irritated at being suddenly awakened when you are caught napping, and you may think that if you were to strike me dead as Anitus advises, which you easily might, then you would sleep on for the remainder of your lives unless God in his care of you gives you another gadfly. And that I am given to you by God is proved by this, that if I had been like other men, I should not have neglected all my concerns or patiently seen the neglect of them during all these years, and have been doing yours, coming to you individually, like a father or elder brother, exhorting you to regard virtue, this, I say, would not be like human nature. And had I gained anything, or if my exhortations had been paid, there would have been some sense in that, but now, as you will perceive, not even the impudence of my accusers dares to say that I have exacted or sought pay of anyone. They have no witness of that. And I have a witness of the truth of what I say. My poverty is a sufficient witness. Someone may wonder why I go about in private, giving advice and busying myself with the concerns of others, but I do not venture to come forward in public and advise the state. I will tell you the reason of this. You have often heard me speak of an oracle or sign which comes to me and is the divinity which Miletus ridicules in the indictment. This sign I have had since I was a child. The sign is a voice which comes to me and always forbids me to do something which I am going to do, but never commands me to do anything and that is what stands in the way of me being a politician, and rightly as I think. For I am certain, O men of Athens, that if I had engaged in politics, I should have perished long ago and done no good either to you or to myself. And don't be offended at my telling you the truth, for truth is that no man who goes to war with you or any other multitude, honestly, struggling against the commission of unrighteousness and wrong in the state, will save his life. He who really fight for the right, if he would live even for a little while, must have a private station and not a public one. I can give you proofs of this, not words only, but deeds, which you value more than words. Let me tell you of a passage of my own life, which will prove to you that I should never have yielded to injustice for any fear of death, that if I had not yielded, I should have died at once. I will tell you a story, tasteless perhaps, and commonplace, but nevertheless true. The only office of state which I ever held, O men of Athens, was that of senator, the tribe of Antiochus, which is my tribe, had the presidency at the trial of the generals who had not taken up the ships and bodies of the slain after the battle of Argonus. And you proposed to try them all together, which was illegal, as you all thought afterwards. But at the time, I was the only one of the jury who was opposed to the illegality, and I gave my vote against you. 
and when the orators threatened to impeach and arrest me and have me taken away, you called and shouted. I made up my mind that I would run the risk having law and justice with me rather than take part in your injustice because I feared imprisonment and death. This happened in the days of the democracy. But when the oligarchy of the 30 was in power, they sent for me and four others into the rotunda and bade us bring Leon the Salamanian from Salamis as they wanted to execute him. This was a specimen of the sort of commands which they were always giving when the view of implicating as many as possible in their crimes. And then I showed, not in words only, but indeed, that, if I may be allowed to use such an expression, I cared not a straw for death, and that my only fear was the fear of doing an unrighteous or unholy thing. For the strong arm of the oppressive power did not frighten me into doing wrong, and when we came out of the rotunda and the other four went to Salamis and fetched Leon, I went quietly home for which I might have lost my life, and had not the power of the thirty shortly afterwards come to an end. And to this many will witness. Now, do you really imagine I could have survived all these years if I had led a public life, supposing like a good man I had always supported the right and had made justice as I ought the first thing? No, indeed, men of Athens, neither I nor any other. But I have been always the same in all my actions, public as well as private and neither have I yielded any base compliance for those who are slanderously termed my disciples or to any other. For the truth is that I have no regular disciples, but if anyone likes to come and hear me while I am pursuing my mission, whether he be young or old, he may freely come. Nor do I converse with those who pay and not to those who do not pay, but anyone, whether he be rich or poor, may ask and answer me and listen to my words, and whether he turns out to be a bad man or a good one, that cannot be justly laid to my charge, as I never taught him anything. And if anyone says that he has ever learned or heard anything from me in private, which all the world has not heard, I should like you to know that he is speaking an untruth. But I shall be asked, why do people delight in continually conversing with you? I have told you already, Athenians, the whole truth about this. They like to hear the, the cross-examination of the pretenders to wisdom. There is an amusement in this, and this is a duty which the God, and this is a duty which God has imposed upon me and I am assumed by oracles, visions, and in every sort of way in which the will of divine power was ever signified to anyone. This is true, O Athenians, or if not true, would soon be refuted. For if I am really corrupting the youth, and I have corrupted some of them already, those of them who have grown up and have become sensible that I gave them bad advice in the days of their youth should come forward as accusers and take their revenge. And if they do not like to come themselves, some of their relatives, fathers, brothers, or other kinsmen should say that evil their families have suffered at my hands. Now is their time. Many of them I see in their court. There is Crito, who is of the same age and of the same deme as myself. And there is Critobulus, his son, whom I also see. And there is also Antiphon of Sisyphus, who is father of Epinages. And there are the brothers of several who are associated with me. There is Nicostratus and brother of Theodotus. And there is Paralysis, son of Democritus, whose brother are Theages, and Demonius, son of Ariston, whose brother Plato is also present, and Antidorus, who is the brother of Apollodorus, who I also see. I might mention a great many others, any of whom Miletus should have produced as witnesses in the course of his speech, and let him still produce them. If he has forgotten, I will make way for him, and let him say, if he has any testimony of the sort which he can produce. Nay, Athenians, the very opposite is the truth. For all those ready to witness on behalf of the corruption, of the destroyer of their mankind, as Miletus and Anitus call me, not the corrupted youth only, there might have been a motive for that, but their corrupted elder relatives. Why should they too support me with their testimony? Why indeed, except for the sake of truth and justice? 
and because they know that I am speaking the truth, and Miletus is lying. Well, Athenians, this and the like of this is nearly all the defense which I have to offer. Yet a word more. Perhaps there may be someone who is offended by me when he calls to mind how he himself, on a similar or even a less serious occasion, had recourse to prayers and supplications with many tears and how he produced his children in court, which was a moving spectacle together with a posse of his relations and friends, whereas I, whom probably in danger of my life, will do none of these things. Perhaps this may come into his mind, and it may be said against me and vote in anger because he is displeased at this. Now if there be such a person among you, which I am far from affirming, I may fairly reply to him, My friend, I am a man, and like other men a creature of flesh and blood, and not of wood or stone, as Homer says. And I have a family, yes, and sons, O Athenians, three in number, one of whom is growing up and the two other are still young. And yet I will not bring any of them hither in order to petition you for an acquittal. And why not? Not from any self-will or disregard of you, whether I am or am not afraid of death is another question of which I will not now speak. But my reason is that I feel such conduct to be discreditable to myself and to you and to the whole state. One who has reached my years and who has a name for wisdom, whether deserved or not, ought not to debase himself. At any rate, the world has decided that Socrates is in some way superior to other men. If those men among you who are said to be superior in wisdom and courage and any other virtue demean themselves in this way, how shameful is their conduct. I have seen men of reputation, when they have been condemned, behaving in the strangest manner. They seemed to fancy that they were going to suffer something dreadful if they had died, and that they could be immortal if you only allowed them to live. And I think that they were a dishonor to the state, and that any stranger coming in would say of them that the most eminent men of Athens, to whom the Athenians themselves give honor and command, are no better than women. And I say that these things ought to be done by those of us who are of reputation, and if they are done, you are not to permit them. You are to rather show that you are more inclined to condemn not the man who is quiet, but the man who gets up a doleful scene and makes the city ridiculous. But setting aside the question of dishonor, there seems to be something wrong in petitioning a judge, and thus procuring an acquittal instead of informing and convincing him. For his duty is not to make a present of justice, but to give judgment, and he has sworn that he will judge accordingly to the laws, and not according to his own good pleasure. And neither he nor we should get into the habit of perjuring ourselves. There can be no piety in that. Do not require me to do what I consider dishonorable and impious and wrong, especially now when I am being tried for impiety on the indictment of Miletus. For if, O men of Athens, by force of persuasion and entreaty, I could overpower your oath, then I should be teaching you to believe that there are no gods, and convict myself in my own defense of not believing in them. But that is not the case, for I do believe that there are gods, and in a far higher sense than that in which any of my accusers believe in them. And to you and to God I commit my cause, to be determined by you as is best for you and me.